Hello and welcome to the Epistemic Unruliness stream of the Always Already podcast. This is your host, James, with you here today. Um, we have a very interesting talk coming up. Um, I have Rochelle Faithful, who is a folk healer, street shaman out of Washington, D.C., um, and she's going to talk about her, um, what she describes as a love practice and a love politic of healing and wellness that not only addresses physical problems of the body, but like, addresses the psychic, social, energetic, and spiritual problems of colonialism, capitalism, racism, and you name it. Um, so without further ado, I suppose we should just move right into the interview um, after this little break. My pleasure to welcome to the show Rachel, Rochelle, excuse me, Rochelle Faithful. Um, Rochelle Faithful is a folk healer um, and creative out of Washington, D.C. Rochelle, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be talking with you. Thank you for coming on. Um, so I'm really excited about the conversation that um, we're about to have, uh, and I think our listeners will um, enjoy this one. So without further ado, I suppose we should just approach what it is that your practice of folk healing does. And then uh, I will also let me throw in and say that um, Rochelle Faithful um, practices as a shaman in residence at Free Body Works, and that's in Washington, D.C., correct? Yes. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then also does um, conjuring work with the Conjure Freedom Collective. Um, but just for your personal practice first and as a way to introduce the listeners to uh, folk healing practices, um, and then how that positions into like social and politics and justice. Um, this floor is yours, right, Rochelle? <laughs> right on. Sure. So I, I, I identify as a folk healer. Um, some people also see me as a conjurer or an energy worker. Um, sometimes I also go as like uh, as a shaman. Sometimes I am affectionately called a street shaman. I like that one. <laughs> um, but essentially, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, but the work that I do is to, I feel a lot of ways, modernize very old ways of healing. And my practice is as probably eclectic as Conjure, the African-American healing tradition from which I um, have such um some of the magic that I work. Um, and so I, I things, but the, the areas in which I'm strongest is in work in which I am able to channel healing energy to folks. And in that there's intuitive guidance that I'm able to uh, carry for folks and to share. And um also, that does include from time to time shadow work. So that is, you know, separating um, harmful energies from folks. Um, I'm also a drummer, so I do a lot of sacred drumming. Um, and I, I tend to call them drum meditations for most folks, because a lot of people, I think, aren't familiar necessarily with shamanic journey. Um, and if they are, they think about it maybe in a very kind of isolated sense of of not kind of the broader 
sense that every culture has a shamanic tradition and right. some form of like entering into different dimensions through like trance, right? And it's, you know, there's drums almost everywhere, but there's also plenty of other tools that folks use. So I describe it that way, but I, I, I'm often drumming for folks um, either to take them on journey. Um, sometimes it's integrated into my energy work as a form of healing. And I also use it as a tool within, uh, I do a lot of healing circles. So I tend to um, integrate that into uh, the healing circles as well. So I, I tend to do a lot of different kind of magical things as you know, most folks who are asked to do folk healing are asked <laughs> to do. Um, so, you know, it extends from like root work, right? More like plant medicine work. And I'm like right now, for example, making a lot of different oils for folks. Um, nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> to even things like, you know, candle magic. And, and I, I tend to do that in the form of prayers for people. I'll, I'll amplify prayers and intentions through candles and candle work to the energy work that I do most often. So I just try to spread the medicine. That's And so, OK, I, I want to talk about your when you talk about healing, are you thinking of just physical body issues or is healing for you a much broader uh, set of like a broader modality that to approach life through? Yes, it's a much broader modality. Um, so, you know, I have, you know, my own knowledge about um, our physical health and wellness and, and what we, we do to stay well. Um, and a lot of that for me actually has a lot to do with um, understanding that we require healing on all levels, right? Mm. So I, I often tell folks, like, there are folks who are expert at the kind of more physiological and chemical side of things. Uh, there are people who... Um, who focus a lot on, on mostly the kind of our emotional well-being. And I, I think that I'm able to work at all those levels, but I, I think my role for most people is to really help people become whole on the spiritual side of things. Right. Um, for me, it's spiritual, psychic, and energetic. All those are about the same. They're not the same, but they're similar enough in which that's the level in which I work. So, for example, like the energy healing I do, you know, it, it does tend to impact folks' physicality, right? Folks might come in with like a chronic pain, but, you know, part of it has to, you know, they're having like strain in their neck, but that's because they're having stress, right, right. on the emotional level. And it's because like spiritually, like they're totally misaligned, right? <laughs> so we try to get to the root of a lot of kind of the disconnection that folks are experiencing. Uh, so for me, even the definition of sickness is about disconnection on some level. And it's my role to help folks get um, reconnected and realigned. Mm. I like this idea. And it's a theme that um, in this podcast, we've kind of been covering recently. We we just did a, uh, a talk or we recorded an episode that posted this week um, that was uh, analyzing a book called Deleuze and the Naming of God and about imminence versus transcendence. And... Mm. And, and and the idea, I think, in that book, one of the takeaways, um, and if our listeners want to go back to that episode, you can listen to that whole talk. It was about an hour and 40 minutes of, of us just trying to figure out, 
where where do we place God within an imminent kind of cosmos? But um, um, but one one of the main things that that book is trying to push against, and I think the whole idea of imminence is is kind of the the split that we have within like modern Western philosophy of like mind body. I think, therefore, I am coming from Descartes, mm-hmm. and that like mind and mind and body or matter and spirit as these separate entities is a mistaken notion and 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 a notion that you've we've seen the last few hundred years of what happens when people think that materiality and objects outside of themselves are just able to be moved and apprehended without any any other kind of a you know, perhaps like a monad or a consciousness or a spirit within them. And so when you talk about healing as energetic and psychic and spiritual that sometimes can show up in a body, you know, on the material plane or not, um, I think this, hearkening to this idea of like the substance behind this all is is unified in some way Mm -hmm. and that tackling or addressing healing, realigning, um, people in, into wellness is is a is a whole project, and I guess the holistic healing covers that already in that word holistic, right? But the the person is whole and unified across both matter and spirit. Yeah, I think that's a profound observation, right? The whole duality of mind and body being still really new. And yet one that seems to be so endemic, right? Not only on the individual level, you know, especially in like a city like DC, but, you know, it's also reverberating across our institutions and our systems. And, you know, that's, that's in part of why I feel like things are so out of whack. Um, But yeah, I, I think even though, you know, I'm, I'm in a holistic community with a lot of other practitioners, I still feel like there's a constant struggle and resistance to actually (laughs) live within that fundamental understanding of unification and integration, Um, even in that world, because I think, you know, it's, 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 it's just such a, you know, so pervasive culturally. Um, But that's it, right? It's, there, there is no, um, there is no physical phenomenon without having these other layers um, interacting and engaging all the time and vice versa. So, you know, sometimes I speak to folks and they're like, you know, I feel really strongly like I don't want to be dealing with medical doctors. And I get it, right? The history makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, mm. as well as like just present day norms around, um, you know, allopathic medicine that can just make it a deeply, like even a traumatic experience in itself. At the same time, like I explained to folks, like they're, you know, technologies are useful. So there could be cases, you know, in which like, you know, that kind of medication could actually be helpful for you in addition to all the other kind of complementary ways for you to be well. I believe that to be a very kind of an individual Mm. reality and experience for folks is that there's, you know, different combinations that we need at different times of things that allow us to stay whole. And what sometimes surprises people when I, especially when I do energy work and and receive intuitive guidance, you know, they might expect me to like describe a really elaborate ritual that they need to do to get connected to spirit. And sometimes they're like, no, spirit wants you to swim. Spirit (laughs) wants you to get in the water. (laughs) That's what you need to do. You just need to be swimming. And sometimes 
you know, folks. Sometimes it's practical, right? It's very practical, right? And, and that's like, and then there are reasons that in which I can help, like, break down or make connections to for folks with with folks. But like, sometimes it's really just that, yeah, practical. I, so you mentioned the the phrase technology is useful, and I I think this is a, an interesting way maybe to kind of back up a bit and and address or go back to the folk healing traditions, black folk healing traditions that you are positioning yourself within mm -hmm. um, because it seems to be the history of conjure root work, hoodoo practices within black culture stemming from slavery. And I'll let you talk about this more um, is that whatever is useful becomes incorporated as part of the praxis. You know, we, you'll just make use of things. Um, but can you speak a bit about the tradition that you've positioned yourself in and how it's been, always been kind of uh pushing against dominant structures um like you were you were mentioning the dominant structures today that want to keep us seeing duopoly but so this practice has always nestled itself in in a kind of uh both negotiating and also resisting those kinds of dominant thoughts of modernity do you want to talk to that absolutely so i i actually didn't grow up um, in conjure or having any sense of the history of how enslaved folks actually kept themselves um, in survival, right? Um, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, and I didn't grow up in the Black church either. Um, I identify as Black, I'm a Black person, and grew up, you know, like third generation middle class. So my distance from that tradition was... Actually, you know, probably very deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, folks didn't want to be, at, you know, at some point associated with what they viewed to be superstition or to be witchy or, uh, you know, all these other kind of connotations that can be attached to what I believe is, you know, just the, the epitome um, or an embodiment of um, black power, right? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's so powerful and therefore so dangerous to some. So, you know, I was, like many people, pretty estranged from some really traditional practices, um, which, which are, again, shamanic, right? So they, they are um, using the um, beliefs of our unification with the natural world and that of the spirit world of all being um, of one substance and being able to rely on all of those uh, connections to uh, heal and stay whole. So, you know, I'm still very much a student of conjure, um, but I did grow up in Virginia and Virginia has this kind of um, its own um, history, right? right. <laughs> with, with hoodoo and conjure and uh, that, which is distinct from like the Gullah Islands in South Carolina and that, which is distinct from like, you know, the really incredible kind of mix of traditions out of New Orleans. But it, the tradition remains the same, right? The, there, there are just so many ways in which enslaved folks um, may do with what they had. And that includes from everything from like doula and, you know, birth medicine mm. to, as you mentioned, root work and the ways in which we just learn to use the local plants around us to keep well. I have a sister, friend, Karen L. Culpepper, who actually is a colleague at Food Body Works. She's, she's, 
pure, like through and through plant medicine woman. <laughs> and she's been uh, sharing more about her thesis work around um, cotton root bark and how that was used essentially as like a fertility drug for a lot of enslaved women to kind of maintain um, wellness with their cycles and through pregnancy. And wow. that was, you know, became a tool of resistance, right? Because it, it, it allowed them some sovereignty over their reproductive systems when, you know, there really wasn't um, that for them. Right. So you're right. You have this idea of conjuring power um, that otherwise wouldn't have existed, uh, you know, that they, they have gained a certain amount of agency through this root work. That's right. And then there are even things that are even more... Um, you know, even more explicit, because a lot of the root work, I think, was a little more clandestine, right? But you have, like, traditions like, you know, the, the Congo circle of, of singing and call and response and dancing, right? Okay. Uh, which, you know, eventually became a ring shout and is now, you know, still still present in the black church. Right. But... And, it, you, yeah, you, you can find that we're recording on a Saturday morning. So I suppose if either one of us went to a Kojic or Pentecostal church tomorrow morning, That's we, right. might, we might see that ring shout uh, spirit fall. That's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I definitely know friends, especially in D.C., right, um, who grew up like around ring shots but had no idea of its origins um and i'm like yeah that's some real witchy (laughs) this is the thing that's most interesting to me in my studies when i started to learn about the hoodoo conjure root work traditions of african americans that this is almost unknown even amongst a lot of african americans today like you were saying your family had kind of distanced yourself from it perhaps on purpose um, and my mother's family is middle class um, African-Americans from Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I, as far as I know, no one practiced or explicitly talked about it or it wasn't, you know, it wasn't maybe some people, old, older folks in the family that I don't know. Right. But like other than anyone that I know that I've spoken to, this is not something they're familiar with or doing. And so it is kind of. You know, in diasporic studies, when people think about how, like, quote-unquote Africanisms survived, you often think of Cuba and Santeria Mm -hmm. and voodoo coming from Haiti or Candomblé in Brazil. And then you get this idea that, like, well, you know, black folks in the United States didn't hold on to anything. And it's like, no, no, no. (laughs) They have their own sets of practices that have been creolized and have continued to evolve and that have made use of whatever has been around and placed in their vicinity but the like the the orientations like we were saying towards a unified you know substance behind matter and spirit those kind and and those kinds of like we can relate and conjure up through engaging the material world you can you can mix certain elements together um for our listeners if anyone's familiar with Claude Lévi-Strauss talking about the science of the concrete where people are bringing invisible forces into matter somehow and then through a science are using materialities to make changes in the world. Um, I think it's very fascinating, not only for what it says about slave resistance to like dominant mentalities of the colonized slave class, but then also just what it says about this deeper question of 
do we think the world is split between mind and body or spirit and matter or not? Yes. And and actually it reminds me of two more things I, I think are important to share about my own connection with Conjure. Mm. Uh, one is I mentioned before that I feel like my practice is eclectic as Conjure. And to me, that's the kind of beauty of, of the practice is that it, because it, it really was a matter of using resources that were available among folks who had, you know, um, didn't even have autonomy over their own own bodies, right? Mm. That we, um, it's not a, you know, it's my understanding, and I don't practice as necessarily as, it's not an orthodoxy, right? But it's a spiritual system in which, you know, there's petitions to things like Hindu gods and goddesses, right? So in fact, when we did drum meditation um, on, on Monday, which is a regular community space that I hold, we were um, asking for rain and storm through the Hindu deity of Indra um, to help continue to wash away that which we no longer need, right? So there's that tradition and there's, there's uh, you know, uh, Jewish traditions in Kabbalah that, that has some influence over... <laughs> Uh, some conjure, right? And of course you have, you know, numerous different First Nations and, and you know, their medicine, Cherokee right. medicine, um, Lumbee medicine, medicine across the board, right? Um, especially which, which definitely has to, you know, I've thought about this before too, that has to have played a large role in like passing on the botanical knowledge of the United States <laughs> to enslaved African Americans, mm-hmm. you know, who of course, they probably identified some plants themselves, and if they were in the same kind of climate zone, there might have been the same plants. But there was already this body of knowledge of botanical herbalism um, that was there from the Native Americans. So that's important to remember them, too. Critical, right. It's, it, it really speaks to um, a shared history of resistance against colonialism and the many ways in which that occurred. Uh, clearly there's, you know, it's a complicated relationship yeah. <laughs> depending on the, you know, the different geographies, but um, I'd love, I think it's so important to go back to those traditions and histories that already exist of collective healing, right. Amongst us all. Right. So that's a good segue then. How does this tradition continue to inform and, and kind of generate uh, anti-colonial resistance. Um, with your work at Freed Body Works in Washington, D.C., um, the seat of colonial power, perhaps, <laughs> um, can you just give us like an average day or maybe not a specific example of something that you've encountered, but something that like a story that shows how this is still a practice that is helping to bring about healing and wellness for colonized bodies? Absolutely. So one of the spaces I enjoy holding the most are, are different healing circles. And many of these healing circles have themes of multi-generational healing. And it's interesting. I, I do classify sometimes by uh, identification along race. So, um, for example, um, a lot of those circles focus on having people connect on a spiritual um energetic shamanic level with their ancestry, right? So for many of us 
for whom we did not have the benefit of either personally knowing our bloodline or being, you know, removed or disconnected from our bloodline. Um, we've been able to use ritual and drum meditation to get connected to uh, different ancestors. And I mean that both kind of an individual sense. Folks, you know, I think feel like they are able to like be like reunited with specific people, mm. but more of a sense of like um, some of the work we've been doing is trying to take on roles as healers of our line. So for that, it means like breaking cycles or patterns within our family, um, being called to do that in this generation and take on the task. For some people that's, um, you know, dealing with addictive patterns that have come about in large part because people, you know, have been living in super oppressive conditions, right? right. So you have, you know, five generations of alcoholics, but it's because, you know, in part, um, folks who have, you know, been living in like the same small town and dealing with the same indignities and economic scarcity and trying to just get by, mm. but, you know, it's, it's in a way that's been destructive to the people that they love and, and stuff that also is more, um, I think we tend to associate with like more political resistance. So folks who are connecting to their bloodline because, um, you know, there might be the second people in their generation to be some kind of like organizers in some way. And they want to continue to get kind of insight about the ways in which they can continue to be um, true to their politic, but also not uh, kill themselves in the process. <laughs> um, so th that's, that's a more general example. Um, I've been running uh, liberatory healing circles that focus on those realities very specifically. Um, and that's a very different experience, again, depending on the group. So, um, you know, that there's a, I, I'll just say that there's a very different experience with a lot of white folks who feel generically white, but don't have very specific ethnic connections right. to their European ancestry, which is remarkable, right? Because clearly there's a lot of rich um, and positive aspects of that identity and those sets of identities that for, for many white folks has been lost and, you know, continues to perpetuate not only feelings of guilt and complicity, but on the, on the other side, right. Feelings of like, you know, the people who are not in that room to whom these white folks are related and are connected to, right. Feelings right. of superiority because they're so disconnected from uh, the positive aspects of what their ancestry is. So we try to get people, to go back uh, to be more present and to be also healing the future, right? That is so, especially, I think that's so such an interesting observation, uh, especially relative to white people who would participate um, in this kind of um, healing practice with you all. Because in some way, I've thought about this as like a shorthand or something for thinking through white privilege and systemic um, institutionalized racism that in, it's it's almost like ancestral karma that continues to reproduce itself and I think so often 
what like when you have this conversation sometimes and certain people will shut down if white people shut down the conversation because they personally are not racist they personally haven't done anything wrong they think right and like that's fine if we had a more ancestral approach to the world and to our culture and to society right that like ancestral energies can get blocked and caught up that's in patterns true. that like it's not about you per se but like while you're here you can be equipped right or you can be called to to work on that energy to do something about it you know while you are in your body now i really love how you put that because in the ways that i think many people in political spaces think about how we inherit wealth and how we inherit culture they don't think about spiritual inheritance in the same way Mm. And that's something we explore, exactly, that kind of karmic um, connection that we have and that what we're carrying and what we need to really just take inventory of is right on point, um, especially in this kind of political moment, cultural moment. You know, I, I think more and more people are waking up to the reality that we just didn't start here, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that histories matter. Um, but, you know, in the same way that we talked about before about the connection amongst all the different levels, that, that's true for time too, right? Any healing we do now is healing the past. It's also healing the future. Um, that's why it's critical to do actively. And that's the way that we think about time and space. And that's why I love things like Afrofuturism, right? Cause it's just yes. like finding us like, it is all the same. <laughs> we are operating in all these dimensions all the time. And that's why... Um, our intentions matter so much because they are reverberating across right. other spaces. It's great. This is such a great, uh, the second interview coming after the, the last discussion we had the posted this week, because there was a section in that book that was talking about time and describing time as a crystal in that mm. there are, you know, there isn't just one plane of it, but that it, it is like intersecting in multiple planes and like this, the past and future, fold in on themselves in ways that it's really hard for us to to be able to think about with our linear linear brains or our brains at least that over time over the last few hundred years have been really like plowed out to think in linear ways um but i this is i was i was thinking i've been actually i guess thinking about this since last year in regards to the confederate flag controversy that has come back around again and the the kind of explanations that you hear from some Southern white folks who will say that this is our heritage and these are our ancestors. And I, you know, and I'm really trying to be sensitive to this as I was, as I was thinking about it and thinking so much work on my side of things is on trying to reconnect, you know, African populations ancestrally as a diasporic practice and, <laughs> and, and how important ancestors are to black studies. Um, whether that is like W.E.B. Du Bois and Fanon as intellectual ancestors or, you know, mm-hmm. Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman as ancestors in the struggle or your actual blood relative ancestors. That's right. Um, and I would never then turn around to white people and say, you shouldn't think anything about, right? Disconnect yourselves from your ancestors because they were not good people. So what is the answer then? It's not throw away your ancestors because that's impossible. You can't do that. You have to heal it then, right? You have to actually address it. And like, if you're going, mm-hmm. to, we need ancestral healing 
because our ancestors 200 years ago in this country were fighting and hating each other and set up so many levels of karmic energy that like we're still working out all of that but like if they weren't able to forgive each other in life we can do it now but that doesn't mean just giving a hug and turning around and walking away right like this would actually have to transform something deep how do we actually forgive it but i think maybe talking about it if we were able to talk about it in this kind of way it would at least get us further than just like always making the person in now time feel like all of the karma of the past is on their shoulders, you know? Sure. It's a burden, but it's a burden for us all. Right. And I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm quick to remind folks of it, um, you know, for, for all the shame and guilt that some folks um, with some ancestry have, right. You know, other folks have like, you know, <laughs> people who were experienced levels of violence, right. Mm-hmm. That are, continue to do so, right, um, by inheritance primarily, right? So I feel you. Um, at the same time, I, I do work with a lot of white folks who are asking these questions. And I think I've been um, interested in two two aspects. One is that I've definitely have, um, in the spaces I've been able to create for folks, there have been folks who report back that, like, they are able to not only reconnect with ancestors, which for whom, right, they try to, to disconnect because of those levels of shame, mm. but those ancestors have had guidance about like mistakes they've made and things they've regretted and yeah. passed on that wisdom to them. So every ancestor is worthy of learning something from, right? Even if they were not, even if they don't make you proud, right? The things they did, there's a lesson still. That's right. And even more so, and, and there's some cases that their ancestors whose own healing in that spirit realm is conditioned upon being able to support folks in this realm, get things right. Mm. And I've been um, surprised to learn that, right, in, in my own practice, but that has happened a number of times. And it's humbling uh, that we're you know, in a spiritual evolution, no matter which form we're in all the time. So, you know, that, that also reminds us again, the continuity of time. It's going to, it's going to keep on. Right. Right. And I think all like the, the idea of all of us being humbling is perhaps the best thing because being humbled is to kind of reduce your like individualized ego sense of yourself. Right. And to realize that you're, you're, you know, you're firmly placed in the middle of a web of connections that are spanning time, space, matter, and spirit. And <laughs> and you have a responsibility within that field, right, to to not do harm. <laughs> to do no harm as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And to not just not do harm, but, like, help others along the way. That's exactly right. I think there's a deep ethics to these kinds of practices that that translate because healing, like we've already, as we've been saying, healing is not just localized to a body. And so healing as an ethical practice becomes, you know, just a politic, a way we engage the world all the time. Um, you know, we're always trying to heal. I, I so appreciate that framing of it. Yeah, it's my own understanding of it. I call it love politic, um, mm-hmm. and I call it my own love practice. 
that's what I feel is the just my orientation in this work. And, I, you know, I totally understand people who grew up associating conjure with, like, you know, real harmful, destructive kind of magic, right? And a part of that clearly is, like, mythology that comes again with trying to demonize a really powerful tradition. But part of it, too, is, like, yeah, there's some folks who don't use magic right. And I have a very deep ethics around... Um, not only having a love orientation, but practically for me, that means that um, I do not, you know, so, so for me, there's a clear line of like, I never do magic that's actually going to negatively affect someone or something else. Right. Um, and even in a, if I'm doing more shadow work and trying to help separate someone from a spirit or energy that's harmful, always try to transmute it first, right? We try to transform that before it, you know, before casting it away. Um, that's a, that's ethics that I hold. But also, like, there, there have been many times in my practice, especially just because, you know, part of what I do is, like, more spiritual counseling and, and just passing on intuitive information for folks, where folks have asked me, like, can you tell me X, Y, and Z? And I... Sometimes I'm blocked from that information because I'm not supposed to know. Other times, though, I, I do know, but I also know it won't serve them mm. for me to just tell them what's been conveyed to me because I know that their healing is actually in working through an issue. Right. And I had that with like someone I care a lot about who I've been working with for a while. She's like, you know, please tell me like whether or not this past incident occurred. And I, I had to just, like, I, I knew the, the answer for what I understood it to be, right? But I, I had to go back and say, like, would that actually serve you, right? What's, what's, what, what is our actual purpose here at this moment that will allow you to kind of move through what's your lesson here? Right. And it wasn't, you know, kind of piling through all the ways in which this person had hurt her. So for me, it's so important to have that love orientation, that love practice, and then, like you said, it's love politic. That's that's wonderful. That's almost maybe the best place to perhaps uh, end our discussion here um, on thinking about a love practice and a love politic, and how we, you know, we conjure our world through, like our world is being made all the time um, through the way we engage it and the way we practice and. And world making and myth making. That last book we read too talked a lot about how important the imagination is to world making and how mm. having an imagination, uh, having God and the imminent cosmos as part of that imagination allows then for you to dream of a world that can constantly re express itself and regenerate itself, but in different ways, right? And that allows for change and 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 you know the ending of oppression and those kinds of things to to come through as well so i i think if this and this whole way that we've set our podcast up is to have like book discussions where we'll kind of irreverently (laughs) trot our way through a book and then have one-on-one interviews with people who are actually practicing the kinds of theories that these books point towards that can deeply unsettle the world and the way dominant structures of thought have set the world up for us. And so I'm so glad that um, I was able to have you on today, Rochelle, and have you introduce your your love practice and politic to our listeners. Um, so again, 
Michelle, thank you for joining us. Um, you're a folk healer out of Freed Body Works in Washington, D.C., and you also do um, conjuring with the Conjure Freedom Collective as well. I will pass along on our website all of the information, um, your website links and whatnot, so listeners can contact you if they want. And you want to make a pitch for that kind of thing? People can contact you for healing services and work? Oh, yes. And I, I also welcome folks who just want to connect by email and just, um, you know, know that we exist in the world. So I, I welcome all kinds of connection. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Again, I'm very, very glad that we were able to have Rochelle Faithful, folk healer, street shaman um, from Washington, D.C., um, on the show today. And like I had mentioned um, with Rochelle, like this is the epistemic unruliness stream. Um, but we're borrowing from Walter Mignolo's idea of epistemic disobedience. And I can't think of a more vivid example of a disobedient epistemic practice than root work conjure uh, hoodoo practices of African Americans, especially understanding the history of these traditions as being orientations towards nature that survive from Africa and then are able to reproduce themselves within the United States um, and continue as an unbroken tradition to this day. This is epistemic disobedience to the extreme because when your dominant master's logic uh, and the dominant master's logic of Western modernity, of a secular modernity, like we talked about um, in our Colocciello Barber discussion on Deleuze and God, um, this is a situation, right, where that kind of a modern view is going to tell you that the world is not populated by energetic beings or spirits. You can't conjure up a spell using you know, roots and plants and implements of nature like that. But when enslaved African-Americans continue to view the world <clears throat> through the categories and through the understandings that they had brought with them and, and refused to kind of lay down the, the imminent world for the transcendent God of their masters, then I, I really can't think of something that is more vividly disobedient in an epistemic way than this. And so this is such an exciting dynamic um, practice or set of practices that continues to hold out this always already promise of of a decolonized uh, black existence. So Rochelle Faithful is doing some interesting things up in D.C. If you have a chance to visit her or talk to her, go online, check out what she has to offer, I would encourage you to do so. Um, and also check out what we have to offer here. Um, we just released um, yesterday the Always Already podcast. Um, we are now on Patreon or Patreon. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. I think Patreon. Um, but it is a service for patrons of podcasts. If you want to help us out, if you think that our conversations are interesting or funny, or if there's, you know, if you take pity on us in any way, um, please give us the tiniest of donations that you think you can you can spare, and it will continue to help us put together this show and bring you exciting and dynamic conversations and guests. And I suppose my pitch is over, so I'll step off that soapbox, um, put my hand back in my pocket, 
and bid you all a lovely day. Thank you. Take care. our website, boysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as of now-ish, support us on Patreon. You can make a donation and get some perks for just $1 an episode. That's right. We've gone full neoliberal. We are crowdfunding and you can help be part of that wonderful, wonderful project. Thank you, as always, to Leah Dion for Static Loops, which you hear opening the episode, in this case, between segments. And of course, always already thank you to B for his cover of Landslide that you're listening to right now. Until next time, have an always already day.